The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and you will be, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of a servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. May God bless the reading of his word. So I first want to start off by saying Happy New Year to you. And many of you may be wondering, what are you talking about? It's still December. Um, but in the church, the New Year started a week ago. Uh, there's this liturgical rhythm. It's a cyclical pattern. It's a wheel of a calendar. If you'd like to see it, there's actually journals underneath the Lord's Supper tables that are free for you to take to journal through this Advent season. But Advent's the beginning of a new year. Advent is the start of this pattern of following after the life and the, the pattern of the life of Christ, of a season of waiting. Advent begins the church here in a season of darkness, a season of calm, a season of anticipation. And I mean, it's perfect. The year, the seasons in our northern hemisphere, the days are getting shorter. Darkness is growing longer. 
And the days get the shortest just before Christmas Day. And from there, they start getting longer. And light continues to become more and more part of the day. So this season, I love it. It's one of my favorite times of the year to pause and, and wait and think about all that the Lord has spoken and what I'm waiting for yet to come. Um, and Ellis set us up last week in the first week of Advent by giving us an overview of this season, reminding us that it is a time of waiting and that the importance for us is to know who we are as the church, know who we are and know where we are in this time of being in between the already but not yet kingdom of God, this Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and we're waiting as we proclaim at the table every week for Christ to come again. That's where we find ourselves, still in that time of church history. And so coming into this scripture, this is I want to really focus on what's known as the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And I mean, this is part of the birth story of Jesus. In the Advent season, what better scripture to talk about than hope as we prepare for, the, for Christmas to come? So let's begin by just setting up the stage. I want to dive straight into the text and um, build the scene for us a little bit. Uh, This introduction of Luke is is what this is considered. These first couple of chapters are an introductory prologue to the whole gospel of Luke. And it contains four songs. There's four songs of which Mary's is the first. There's Mary, Zechariah, um, the angels, and Simeon. And those scriptures are there. It's a great study to just go to these songs and read through them. So in the church app, if you're following along in that, you'll see they're in there. Um, Take some time this week to just read through these songs and see what Luke is doing in setting up the stage for the rest of his gospel. Each one of these songs seems to be some kind of proclamation about what the reader can anticipate in the writings of Luke that Jesus himself is going to do. And I really want to focus on Mary's song with us today. So setting the stage, there's this backstory that the Gospel of Luke begins first not with the story of Jesus, but with the story of Zechariah. He's a priest in the temple who is going in to perform his duties, and and Luke makes sure to let us all know that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are old, very old. That's the language that the Gospel writer uses. These folks are not as spry as they used to be. But he's in the temple, he's praying, he's lighting incense before the Lord, and the angel Gabriel shows up and has a proclamation for him. Your wife, Elizabeth, though she's been barren, notice that. A barren woman in the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament and the New is super important to take note of because from barren women come extremely important children. John the Baptist is born from Elizabeth. So this promise that the gospel writer uh, gives to Zechariah through this angel is that you're going to have a son in your old age. Zechariah doubts this promise. He asks, how is this going to happen? We're both really old, remember? You've made it clear. We're old folks, all right? But we're going to have a kid. How how can this be? And Zechariah is silenced. But it happens. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She hides herself away because she can't... She doesn't know how to be in public with this miraculous thing coming true. She, she is, it says in Luke that she hides herself away for five months, and this baby is growing inside of her. So that's where we are. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, this one promise coming true. And then back into the text where we are in verse 26. 
Notice all the descriptors that the gospel writer uses. At the beginning of the scripture that we're focusing on today, the gospel writer layers on all the adjectives. He makes a point to tell us that it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so there's no doubt that she's pregnant. Ladies who have been pregnant before, you know what I mean. In the sixth month of your pregnancy, there's no question that somebody's about to have a baby. It's not pretend that this promise came true for Elizabeth. There's no question that the promise has come true for Elizabeth. This baby is about to be born. But it's, not, it's still not yet. The gospel writer makes a point to tell us that Gabriel goes to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin who's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That's so much detail. When you're reading the scriptures and you see details building up upon one another, that's something to pay attention to. You have a time frame. You have a specific angel going to a specific place, to a specific woman who is known to be, who's said to be a virgin, who's being married to this man named Joseph. And for us, the one detail that I really want us to grab a hold of is this idea that he's going to be, that he is a descendant of David. So just keep that in your minds as we go through the rest of the scripture. But carrying forward, we see Gabriel greeting Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And the scripture tells us that this terrifies Mary. When I read this greeting, I wonder what's troubling to Mary about what the angel has to say. I mean, it's like me coming in a room and saying, hey, how are you? God be with you. But to Mary, for some reason, that's terrifying. It brings fear. Is it because of the appearance of this angel? Is it something in the words that he spoke? You who are highly favored? Why? What makes me highly favored? What does it mean that the Lord is with me? Questions to wrestle with that I don't have answers for, but again, when we're reading the scriptures and there's a gap in the text, there's something there that says, wait, why is she troubled? It's something to press into. It's something to explore that I want to encourage you to do. I don't have an answer for you today, but I wanted to pose the question so that you could wrestle with me. And what's troubling about a greeting that says, you're highly favored and the Lord is with you. But as we press in, we we see that Gabriel notices Mary's fear. He notices her trembling before him. And he says, first and foremost, don't be afraid. That's one of the most frequent commands in the scriptures. Don't be afraid. And then this promise builds upon itself. You're going to have a miracle, baby. And, and it seems like the gospel writer is saying to, through Gabriel to Mary that um, he's trying to calm her spirit. He's trying to, to give her some peace in this promise, in this greeting. Um, the words that he's giving her are, are, are trying to clarify what he's there for. But he says, you're going to have a miracle, baby. He's going to be called the son of the most high. God will give him the throne of his father, David. Remember, that's one of the most important details we were just given. And his kingdom will never end. Thanks, Gabriel. I don't think you calmed any spirits in making that promise. And you see that. Mary asks a clarifying question. How how am I going to have a baby if I'm a virgin? How is this supposed to happen? And not to mention the things about being called the son of the Most High, being given the throne of his father David, sitting on a a throne in a kingdom that will never end. It's more mysterious 
What Gabriel's doing is not necessarily providing clarity, but inviting Mary more into the mystery of what's about to happen in her. And after her clarifying question, we see from the angel some more details about how this will come about. It's going to be done through the power of God. It's going to be done in a way that man can't explain it. But remember, in verse 36, as we see, this is what Gabriel has to say, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child once again in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And this is something that I really want us to anchor in on. For no word from God will ever fail. For no word from God will ever fail. And to this, rather than ask another question, Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What a response to something that's mysterious and uncertain. That seems to be only possible through the power of God. And Mary's response is, may your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. Ponder that as we continue through this scripture. Because right after that, the narrator once again, the narrator picks up the pace. At that time, Mary gathers her things. She goes from the northern region of Israel in Galilee to the southern hill country of Judea to meet with Elizabeth. That's no small journey, but she gets there fast. She's in a rush to go to Elizabeth. She's been given this promise. She's excited about it. There's something going on inside of her. She wants to share it with this woman who has had a promise fulfilled herself, who's her own relative. And she gets there, and the baby inside of Elizabeth just leaps at her greeting it. Mary comes into the house and says, Hi, Elizabeth. And this baby knows that something special is in its midst. This is another miraculous story of something mysterious and wondrous going on in these women. And Elizabeth's words to Mary are incredible. Encouragement, comforting, woman to woman, relative to relative, blessed mother by God. And I really, again, want us to anchor down in verse 45 of chapter 1. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. These women are together, and it is this stage that's set for the song that I'd really love us to focus on today. Promises. Mystery. Miracle. Wonder. Anticipation. Hope. This is the first song in the Gospel of Luke that's sung, and it's sung by Mary. Let's dive into this together. You'll notice that nothing has happened yet other than promises being made. There's the hint of one about to be fulfilled through Elizabeth. She has become pregnant. She's about to have a child. But to Mary, all that's that's happened is an angel showed up and shared some crazy, strange encouragement that isn't super encouraging, but is challenging and unknowable and curious. But this is how Mary responds. Let's read this together. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. What 
has God done yet? God has showed up through an angel and spoken a promise. God has showed up through an angel to a relative and fulfilled part of a promise. But what's really been done yet? Mary sees something as already done, just through promises being spoken. Continuing on. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Again, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. What deeds do you see being done, Mary? He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. How has he done this yet? All he's done is spoken promises. He's told you you're going to have a miracle baby. What has God done yet? He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary sees things as already having happened through the promises being spoken to her. I'm sure you see that in the tone of this song. It's not God will, God's about to, One day, it's by this coming about, already, this has been done. It's as if in knowing the promise, the truth of it is already real. The actuality of it being fulfilled is not something that's pretend to Mary. It's a reality. And if you'll recall, these songs are part of a prologue of Luke that are setting up the stage for all that's to come through the life of Jesus. So what do we see through these promises. Well, before we dive in too far to that, I want us to look at how songs like this have come up in other parts of the scripture. Because what we see in this song is that the promise God has made is going to bring these things about. For God's kingdom is one about reversal as it has always been throughout the pages of scripture. First, I'd like us to take a quick look at 1 Samuel. uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a story about Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And if you know anything about that story, Hannah was a woman who was barren, who could not have a child. And God promises her a son. That son is Samuel. This is her prayer when she finds out that she's going to conceive. My heart rejoices in the Lord In the Lord, my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Does that sound familiar? The mouths of the proud will be silenced. That's what Mary just sung about. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. You hear that? The warriors, the strong, the mighty. But those who had stumbled before are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. Reversal. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. You hear that? Death, life, grave, life. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So that's from closer to the beginning of the Bible. And then in the middle, we have Psalm 113 that echoes these same things. Praise the Lord. Remember how Mary's song began with praising, with glorifying God for the promises spoken. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. It's lots of praise compounding upon itself, is it not? The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. And this, pay attention to this, he raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, he seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. All throughout scripture, reversal, the poor, the needy, the hungry being filled, the mighty being brought low. It's echoed once again in Mary's song as we set up the stage for what's going to come through Jesus' own ministry. And sure enough, Jesus begins his own ministry with the same message. Take a look at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus' very first public sermon recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Isn't that language amazing? He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus viewed himself as one who came to be anointed, King language, remember we talked about sitting on the throne of David, to bring good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. That is the message that Jesus begins with in his very ministry. And so what does Jesus do? Some things that we've talked about Mary seeing were scattering the proud in their inmost thoughts, God performing mighty deeds with his arm, bringing down rulers from their thrones, but lifting up the humble. Well, let's see how this plays itself out. I'm just going to go through... A whole lot of scriptures, they're in the the notes of your church app if you're following along. Again, another thing to study through this week. Throughout his ministry, Jesus heals lepers. He heals a paralytic. He heals the servants of the people in power. He raises a widow's son to life. He raises a synagogue leader's daughter. He heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He feeds 5,000 plus people. Remember what Mary sung about, God will fill the hungry with good things. But... He sends the rich away empty. Continuing on, he heals a woman who's crippled in, 
in Luke 13. He heals a blind beggar. Notice all the characteristics of these people who Jesus heals. A leper, a paralytic, a servant, the son of a widow. All of these have huge social and economic implications to the people that are reading these passages. Lepers were people outside of the community, people who were not welcomed in to worship, people who were not even, they had their own communities outside of the pockets of town and society. The son of a widow, that's the only hope for that widow to have any economic resource in her life. Children were inheritance to the people of this time. A paralytic, one who had no hope. In fact, that story, I love that story. It's one of Ellis' favorite stories. is about people who bring their friend on a mat and go through the roof of a house to get to Jesus. A man who had no power on his own to get to Christ, but his friends do it for him. Jesus heals this man. He heals the servants of people in power. It's not the people in power who get the healing. They come to Jesus and ask for it, for the, the benefit of their servants, but it's the servants who are healed. He raises, he feeds 5,000 plus people on the hillside from a few loaves and fish. A blind beggar. Again, you notice the tone of the people that Jesus tends to heal. But what does he have to say to the religious elite? In Luke 11, there's the seven woes that are spoken to the Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs, language about you, you, you withhold, you set a heavier yoke upon them. Then is being asked. And in Luke 18, a rich man comes to follow him. And Jesus essentially says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And what does this rich man do? He turns away sad, for he had many possessions. It's not a command in that story that we all need to sell everything and, and live without, but it is about our heart attitude. And you see this rich man being told, Give to the poor. Don't be so confident in your riches. And at that command, he turns away sad. It's not that Jesus turns him away. The man can't accept the message that Jesus has to offer. And all this stuff happening through the Gospel of Luke is exciting. And there's people following Jesus. And the crowds get bigger of this, this message. You, you see, this is, this is someone who is perceived as one who's going to liberate the message that we are given uh, in Luke, in, in the beginning, in the, in the verses that we read are about one sitting on the throne of David. They're waiting for a king to come back and restore Israel to its former glory. David was the guy for Israel, the monarch, the king, the golden standard for all of Israel's kings. So hearing a message about one coming back to reign on the throne of David would get some people jazzed up and excited. And he comes into Jerusalem, he's greeted as a king, but he dies on a cross. I titled this message, Expect the Unexpected. Mary saw Jesus' work on earth, what he was about to do. Bringing up the lowly. Feeding the hungry. Speaking to those in power. She sees she's been promised one who will sit on the throne of David, the one who will restore the kingdom. 
And it doesn't look like the promise comes true whenever Jesus dies on a cross. But sure enough, there's a story about resurrection. There's a story about Jesus coming back. And this gets his people excited once again. He's the talk of the town. You read in the end of Luke, a couple of disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And this guy shows up. We know as we read the story that it's Jesus. But they don't recognize him. They're talking about... Well, he, he comes to them and he asks, why are, you, why are you so sad? Why are you downcast? What's, what's going on? And they're like, where have you been, man? <laughs> where have you been? Have you not heard about this one Jesus who came? We thought he was going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus walks along with them. The scriptures tell us that their hearts are burning inside of them as he walked with them. And he unpacks the scriptures to them. But they, reckon, they, don't, they still don't recognize who he is until they're at a table. And they sit down with him. He breaks bread with them and they drink the cup and their eyes are opened up to who this was in front of them. The one they perceived that would restore the kingdom to Israel who died but was resurrected unpacks the scriptures and sits at a table and breaks bread with them. And they go, you're Jesus, you're back. You're here. The news spreads. It gets to the disciples. Poof, Jesus shows up in a locked room. Hey guys, let me come to the table with you. Again, another crazy, mysterious, miraculous thing told in the Gospel of Luke about this king, this savior, this Messiah, this anointed one, who is again recognized when he comes to a table and breaks bread with his friends. And it's at this point in in the Gospel of Luke at the end, he's with his disciples. And Jesus tells his disciples, yes, I'm alive, I'm raised, but this is what I have for you. Stay here until you're clothed with power on high and you'll go forward and you'll proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations, which to us means all people, beginning here in Jerusalem. Through Mary's song, through the beginning of Luke, all of this stuff was predicted through the gospel writer. Again, a prologue, something setting up the stage for the rest of what the gospel writer is about to set forth. So there's two stories going on here. There's the story itself that we're told through Luke, and then there's the narrative as it's being told by the gospel writer. The prologue prepares us for what's to come. The story goes on with all of these healings, miraculous signs being performed, words being spoken to people in power, death, burial, and resurrection. And it ends with the calling sent to his disciples, go forward from here and preach the forgiveness of sins and repentance to all people. One thing I learned this semester, as I mentioned, I'm in seminary right now, um, is there's one thing that's really special about the Gospel of Luke. Does anybody have a guess as to what that might be? Oh, no other Gospel writer does this. What's that? In a sense, it's it's a great it's a great conversation starter. But the thing that I want us to draw our attention to is Luke writes the book of Acts. No other gospel writer has a follow up, but Luke does. Luke ends his gospel by saying, "Jesus appeared to his disciples, gave them this message. This is what they're going to do." And then what does he do? He tells us what they go and do. And what are the things that the apostles go and do? the very same things that Jesus did. They heal. They proclaim messages to the poor and the oppressed. They begin a community 
of people who are following one another, who are actually giving up their possessions for the benefit of one another. And it goes from Jerusalem. You see in the beginning of Acts that the, the message, the, the charge to his disciples is expanded. Not only is it to begin in Jerusalem, it's to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Acts tells the story of how the people of the church continued doing the same things Jesus did in the same power that Jesus promised to them. So with all of this, and in this Advent season, what does this mean for us? Well, to begin, I want to pose a question. Are the promises of God enough? We say this a lot from whatever stage we're standing on. Um, as teachers here, that we're, when we're about to teach on something, we're often um, challenged in it the most. And uh, I can say for sure that that's been true for me as I've prepared for this teaching. Um, asking myself this question, are the promises of God enough? They were for Mary. They were for Elizabeth. They were for the early apostles. Are they still enough for us today? Against the bleakest of backdrops, are the promises of God enough? Remember that this is a narrative. This is a gospel writer writing in a particular place and time to a particular group of people. This is post-exilic Jerusalem, waiting for their Messiah, waiting for a king. They think it's going to be Jesus. They've got Rome that has their boot on their necks. They're under oppression and this message is being proclaimed in Luke's gospel. And as I was studying for this, I came across a resource that I, that I have in school. Um, it was about, it's an article entitled, The Virgin Birth and What It Means. And I just wanted you all to have this quote, because it really impacted me. Because there's a lot of similarities between the context that Luke was writing in and the context in which we find ourselves today. But this is what this author had to say. This is from Mary Foskett. She's a biblical scholar, a professor at Wake Forest. She says, We can be sure that Mary, along with the vast majority of people in the time and place in which she lived, knew economic and social hardship and understood what it meant to live in a land occupied and dominated by Rome. Hers was not an easy life. Like millions of people throughout human history, Mary lived in socioeconomically and politically tense circumstances where people were familiar with both uprisings and crackdowns and were well acquainted with poverty, illness, and injustice. She's expounding on all of this based on the fact that the scripture tells us Mary was a virgin. Like millions of women, Mary also knew what it was like to live as a woman in a world where male privilege prevailed. The spirit by which the virgin conceives the Messiah also empowers her to prophesy and proclaim the nearness and faithfulness of God. The virgin conception and Mary's consent to the divine plan. Remember, she says, may it be done as, as you've said. This speaks as much to God's concern for the downtrodden and the depth of Mary's faith as they do to the miraculous nature of her pregnancy. So for us today, we see through Mary, one who was likely downtrodden, one who was likely oppressed, one who has much hope 
for what's to come through the promises given to her. We see a heart of God that is for the downtrodden. We see a heart of God that responds to deep faith. And it's here that we see some of the intent of the author through this narrative. Remember, Luke writes Acts, setting us up to continue in the very same kind of work that Jesus was about. If we're here, I'm guessing we're here because we're curious about Jesus. We're curious about Christ and what he has for the world today. In this age, we would consider ourselves among the disciples of Jesus, or at least trying to be there. Well, this is what we're called to do. Scatter those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Bring down rulers from their thrones, but lift up the humble. Fill the hungry with good things, but send the rich away empty. And remember the promises that God has spoken. Here we return to the theme of today in hope. As I said, that question, are all the promises of God enough, is one I've had to wrestle with myself this week. Because we live in our own incredibly tense, I mean, I can feel the tension in this room as I was reading some of that quote um, from Mary Foskett. We live in a tense and dark backdrop, facing many of the same tensions that the people in Luke's audience faced. We wrestle against power structures. We wrestle against wealth, inequality, violence. The list goes on. There's all kinds of questions in the public sphere today about what what does God have to do in these things? But Advent reminds us that it's against a backdrop of darkness that light shines forth. Do you recognize that you're part of the same story that was started nearly 2,000 years ago? Do you feel the call of God asking you to join into the same mission that Jesus and his apostles were about? What promises has God made you? You're here today. I'm I'm guessing that God's called you in some way. As I recount my own journey of leaving a comfortable career um, as I was going through a military academy to diving into worship ministry, and now going to seminary as I've been a restaurant employee for the last six years, I go, what happened and how did I get here? God asked me to take a step of faith, and I'm here. What's your story? I have the privilege of wearing a microphone and saying it to 100-plus people at once, but are you sharing your stories to one another in the spheres of influence that you have of how God has called you and how you've said yes? Remember that Mary's song that she sings is based solely on promises. Nothing had happened yet. But to her, it's as if they'd already come true. Do you trust the promises God's spoken to you enough to begin to act on them despite the backdrop of darkness that you're against? There's a lyric from a Sleeping at Last song that I've been meditating on over the last couple of days. It says, in the darkest of rooms, light shines the brightest. That's where we are. It's Advent. We, the people of God, are in a season of reflecting on what it means to be a people in darkness, a people of light, shining against that backdrop in these powerful ways. And I want to propose an invitation to you. Have you ever tried to align the rhythm of your life to the rhythm of Christ's life? Have you ever tried to join into this liturgical wheel calendar that shows a season of waiting, a season of birth, of incarnation, 
where we celebrate in Christmas tide. And then there's this time where it mirrors the life of Jesus, of, um, uh, of ordinary time. And then there's Lent and Easter. And then a long season of ordinary time. Most of the year is actually this season called ordinary time where we're just about our daily work because that's the story we're a part of in the story of Jesus is being about the daily work of being his disciples in the world today. Have you ever tried to align your life to this rhythm of Christ? Have you ever tried to align your life to the mission that's proclaimed in this song, filling the hungry, speaking against power, raising up those who cannot raise themselves? And in that, do you find, I wrestle with this all the time, do you, do you find yourself among the proud or do you find yourself among the humble? There seems to be a dichotomy here, but when I wrestle in this, I find a pattern that's cyclical. If you think about it, someone who's up high and mighty who will be brought low, one who's brought low who will one day be brought high, there's never a comfortable place in this pattern, which ends up equalizing all things. God's building a community among us where the mighty and the humble will be as one. That's what we are a part of. That's what we are invited into through this message of Christ. See, that's the beauty of reversal. It levels the playing field. For anyone brought low will one day be lifted, and those who are lifted can just as easily find themselves brought low again. But the points to join in on the great universal, all-encompassing world work of Christ, leveling the playing field. And so today, just as in the ending of Luke, we're invited to come to a table and recognize Christ among us. In the taking of the bread and the cup, I hope that our ears may be opened to hear as we wrestle with the questions of hope raised to us today. What are you hoping for? Are you hoping for yourself to be lifted out of the darkness? Are you hoping to see this city lifted out of the darkness? Are you hoping to see our political sphere less of a place of darkness and more of one of light, of hope, of proclamation to the world? What are you hoping for? Are there people in your family that you need to see God break through? And what are you hoping for? How has God spoken to that hope? Maybe as we continue in worship and as we come to the table, we can recognize that Christ is right here. Christ is joining us in this journey. Christ has called us into this journey, and Christ has promised to give us the power to walk out this journey. Are the promises enough for you today? Let's pause and pray.